This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and I'm excited to be speaking with Bonnie Miller about her book, Augusta Brown, Composer and Woman of Letters in 19th Century America, published in 2020 by the University of Rochester Press. Born around 1820, Augusta Brown was a pianist, organist, composer, music pedagogue, entrepreneur, music critic, and writer. She spent much of her life in New England and the area around Washington, D.C., and had a regional reputation by the time of her death in 1882. Miller uses Augusta Brown as an example at once of an extraordinary woman who was involved in establishing 19th century musical culture in the U.S., but also an ordinary woman whose experiences were typical of people in that era. The loss of loved ones, the trauma of the Civil War, the pain of dislocation and living through financial hardship, the comfort of deep religious belief, and the joys of marriage and a close family. Welcome, Bonnie. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you for the invitation, Kristen, and thank you for your interest in Augusta Brown. I believe that her story and the context of her times will have many tangents that interweave with your own research in American music. Well, I absolutely know that to be true from having read your book, but also from having gone to many talks you've given over the years about Augusta Brown. This is a long-awaited book, and I was excited to finally get it into my hands. Um, So she is not an everyday name, certainly not a household name. Can you tell us a little bit about Augusta Brown and how you got um, interested in looking at her for this book? I encountered Augusta Brown in the pages of American magazines from the 1840s, but she was hardly the only woman there. There were hundreds of women who published uh, songs in magazines of the period and hundreds of men as well. And there were hundreds of magazines that published music for people to sing and play at home for entertainment, um, to amuse themselves and to entertain guests. I began working on music in magazines from a very unlikely direction. I began with the journals of German Expressionism because I had been working with music by Arnold Schoenberg that had been published in uh, several periodicals from the German Expressionist era. During a summer seminar sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities at the Schoenberg Institute, which was then located in Los Angeles, California, I asked the director, Leonard Stein, about examples of other magazines than the one I had particularly researched, that was Versacrum, uh, other magazines that Schoenberg and his circle, Alban Berg, Anton Webern, other pub- 
uh, other publications that they might have had music as part of. He said, yes, he knew of several, and he sent me to a special collection of German Expressionist materials in Los Angeles. From there, I soon saw so many that I was, I was hooked already, but I went to the main library at UCLA while I was uh, there that summer in Los Angeles. It was a very fortunate time to have done so because on the shelves, just sitting there, they still had all of their uh, bound magazines from previous centuries. They had not relocated many of them yet to uh, remote storage, as is the case now in most libraries, nor had they placed them into special collections where they're much harder to access. I just discovered music and magazines by browsing the shelves. And from German Expressionism, I branched backwards, as it were, into uh, French magazines from the fin de siècle, then to American uh, chapbooks and other little magazines from the end of uh, the 19th century, um, magazines from the eight, uh, 19th century in America, such as the one where, uh, the ones, I should say, where I saw music by Augusta Brown and others, and back uh, into the German Romantic period and even into the 17th century in magazines from France and England. So I happened into an enormous uh, cultural um, treasure trove that wasn't very well written about, not very well described anywhere. So I've just been hooked ever since by the magazine music phenomenon. At some, at some point, I decided I would develop uh, more about the life of Augusta Brown because I could see she was such a go-getter. She published in a number of different magazines and quite a bit of music. So um, I was interested in learning more about what she had done and how she came to be uh, who she was. Um, you said toward the very end of this book that her career was sort of parlor to parlor, then parlor to public, and finally parlor to pulpit. And I thought that was such an interesting way to kind of describe her life from sort of going from the home all the way to uh, to the public and also um to describe uh, her religious writings at the end of her life. Can you give our readers a little bit more, um, sort of flesh that out, that sort of those three stages you see in her life so that people will have a sense of just how expansive her activities were? That's a good point. It's very true. When she started, she began with the light kinds of songs that were popular in the 1830s and the kind of brilliant piano music variations and fantasies that were the common fare for um, young women studying piano to um, perform if, if they had the technical skills. She began publishing sheet music while she was still a teenager. But she got into the magazine publication not long after when Godey's Magazine, which was the best-selling magazine in 19th century America, Godey's published one of her songs uh, in um, 1840. And this really launched her into that magazine um, circuit. Bit by bit, she published in more and more magazines. This was really an ingenious way for her to get her name out to the public. It was, 
imagine for every piece she published in a magazine like Godey's, thousands of people saw it. It it they their circulation was half a million by the time of, of the Civil War. Of course, not every magazine had that kind of circulation, but every song she published in a magazine would reach many more people, both to see her name and to hear her music and to sing or play it at home, far more than individual sales of sheet music, which of course she also did. But I think she early on discovered that the periodical, uh, it was like the social media of today. That's how she got her name out there. It's how she got her music out there and into the hands of people. It was a wonderful launching pad. Now, uh, women had very little access to the public forum in general. It was considered unladylike to speak or lecture in public at the time. Women who did were often regarded as brazen or uh, not acting appropriately modest and feminine. By going into the magazines, she tapped into a public medium uh, where she could uh, publish her music, and then later publish her prose and her opinion pieces and her poetry. So she took full advantage of this way to reach the broad mainstream of the American reading public, and they were a public of readers. Uh, in the course of her life, the difficulties she faced turned her, she was always um, a very faithful Christian, but the calamities and losses in her life turned her ever more towards uh, religious themes and um, finding ways to embody her faith in her creative works, whether it was music or writing. And that's why I say from parlor to pulpit, she began to use um, denominational periodicals, uh, Christian denominational periodicals, as a way to preach in an era before women were accepted as ministers in most Protestant denominations. Granted, there were a, a few evangelical sects that allowed women to minister, but she was a mainstream Protestant, usually Episcopalian or Presbyterian, in her church affiliation. So she ingeniously got around the difficulty of women to speak out in public by going into the periodical press. You know, in this answer, um, you touched upon another part of your book that I found particularly fascinating about Augusta Brown, which was the ways in which she had to negotiate this tension in her life between, you know, what she was clearly an ambitious person. She had all these different roles that she was fulfilling. She was trying to get her name out there in the public um, through her writing and through her music. But on the other hand, she had rather... Um, conservative religious and uh, religious beliefs. She seems to be conservative politically in some ways. And so she was always riding this, um, you know, seesaw between her own um, political, her own ambitions and, and the social mores of the day. Can you talk just a little bit more about how she resolved those tensions and what you see as um, sort of I would guess sort of the inconsistencies that we all have in our life between uh, different parts of our beliefs and our um, our careers and so forth. 
She certainly does uh, seem to have been very contradictory between that very conservative uh, outlook religiously that she had. And of course, she was terribly squeezed by the social mores um, regarding uh, young women, especially unmarried young women. She always had to stay on the right side of social opinion if she wanted to function as a music teacher and a church organist. More than anything, she loved playing the organ. So it was very important to her to at least appear to conform to uh, public opinion, um, to keep that on her side. At the same time, she did have those entrepreneurial ambitions. And she reached, she dared in ways that uh, seem very modern now, but were quite a stretch uh, in her time. I like to think that she did not confront um, the the gendered expectations that uh, limited women of her time. Rather, she tried to get around them and push from the inside. So she did not challenge openly in most cases, but she did try to make things happen. For example, she had a very important essay that she, in fact, she had written, um, she wrote two books that were published, and she wrote a third book that was never published because the Civil War had uh, created such problems in, in the publishing industry. And she broke that book up into chapters and tried to place them as articles. It was a book about uh, her Christian um, uh, scriptural um Uh, meanings and her interpretation of them. She thought it was very carefully based in research. So she sent her article to uh, the editor of the Princeton Review, a Presbyterian um, house journal. And uh, this was very daring. They did not publish a single article by women during the 19th century. So she took on a um, a big challenge to interest that publisher in her work. We don't know what that publisher said to her, but her article never appeared there. But this is the kind of thing that she would do to try to promote her work. She would send letters to editors at uh, distant uh, periodicals or distant publishing companies and try to interest them in something she was doing. I'm sure that she failed many more times than she succeeded, but you know, that's the new definition of success is how many times you fail, because that then will also lead to how many more times that you succeed. Um, you know, in some ways, she reminds me of someone like a Phyllis Schlafly, who was so anti-feminist, but yet had a public career. You know, I mean, she was a politician, and yet she spent her all her time denouncing other women politicians. So it's the sort of how do you find a way to to both be public and um, conform to social norms that tell you you're not supposed to be? It's quite um, it's it's quite a, a, a balancing act for sure, and. And I think one that she seems to have found ways to negotiate to negotiate pretty um, pretty skillfully. I have often thought of that connection to Phyllis Schlafly too. It's very hard to say what her real political um, views were. She never says she was very careful about that. Never says in print. So there are so many questions for which I can only speculate. And this is in part because 
We have her public voice in periodicals and uh, in newspapers, for instance, when she would send letters to the editor. But we don't have very many personal letters or any personal papers like a diary, which would tell us so much more about what she was thinking and feeling. It's, it's frustrating, of course. We sort of only have one side of the story. And I never give up hope that some personal papers will turn up one day somewhere. But uh, sadly, uh, her family has died out completely. There are no um, survive, there, there are no living descendants for several decades. And I believe any kind of personal items like that um, have have been lost unless through some great piece of luck they are identified. Well, I was actually going to ask you about, you know, what you were using as your source documentation. I mean, obviously she left this very rich musical and um, uh, prose uh, legacy in print, but um, I, she also she had a pretty big family, some of whom lived quite a long time, and there's really nothing at all from any of them as well, or their acquaintances. It, this is you're mostly, is that correct? Um, uh, looking at published uh, documentation. Yes, there are a few letters that exist in collections of uh, correspondence of more famous men, and there every item. Um, by Augusta Brown that we see, and it's just a handful of, of letters like that. Each one shows us something about her. For example, uh, um, sh when she dedicated music to people who lived afar, you know, she would write a letter asking for permission to dedicate a piece of music to them. We only have one of those letters. It is one that she wrote to Henry Clay, the uh, prominent um, senator and politician in mid-19th century America. So in it, we see how she, uh, of course, is very complimentary, very flattering to the recipient of the letter, but manages to convey what she's trying to do and ask them for, and to also uh, persuade them of her credentials um, to do this. Uh, we just wonder how many of those letters she wrote over her lifetime. I imagine it was hundreds um, that that we, we haven't yet seen as more of these kinds of archives are cataloged and digitized, then access um, to them may increase. There may be additional letters by Augusta Brown that, that turn up. And each one, as I said, reveals something more about her. Um, I'm always interested when people write about uh, less famous figures, people who were um, peripheral even in their own times. And I think it's fair to say that that was Augusta Brown. Um, you know, she she knew uh, more famous people. She interacted with more famous musicians, but she never really was at the center of musical life in America. So what can you learn about a more peripheral figure um, that you can't learn from, say, looking at someone like Louis Moro Gottschalk, for instance, who was also a pianist, also a, um, a composer, and certainly much more famous than she was. That's true. Uh, Augusta Brown's life uh, speaks to me uh, 
because she's a woman like me, a woman like you. Uh, she's an American. She's a musician. She's a pianist. She's a teacher. She's doing all the same things that we try to do to publish, to uh, have uh, outreach with colleagues. But she's doing them all 150 years ago. So uh, she's become to me like like one of the members of the chapters I've belonged to in the Music Teachers National Association. She's like a colleague because she does so many of the same things we are still pursuing. You're right that she was never very famous. She was just a small person in a very big room. And yet her, her story is just an all-American entrepreneurial story that enriches us, I think. It certainly enriched my life to learn about how a woman of that time could get along, could manage, could thrive even. And also something so interesting about her is because she was so careful in what she put into print, she controlled the narrative about herself. She controlled the story. She was never somebody else's object or muse. It was her story that she put into history for us, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely correct. Um, I, I wonder, uh, one of, so... You know, we could go try to go through all of her different roles, but I think that's uh, going to take more time than we have. So maybe we can sort of dip in and out about some aspects of what she did. And I found her music criticism particularly interesting. Um, you know, there's Margaret Fuller predates her, but dies in, I believe, 1850. And there's not really another woman music critic for a, a considerable amount of time, except for Augusta Brown. So can you talk a little bit about her music, her her role as a music critic. Critic, what did she have to say about music in her own time period? And uh, particularly, I'm interested. I'd love you to talk a little bit about how she thought about classical music versus minstrelsy, which was the most popular form of popular music at the time. You're right that Margaret Fuller may have been the only model she had for a woman who wrote any kind of music journalism. Calling her a music critic is uh, a bit misleading because that's not really the kind of music journalism that she did. She wrote what we would call arts feature stories that talked about music history or about themes in the arts. It was extremely rare, really only one or two occasions, when she actually talked about a concert event. Uh, and she didn't, she described really rather than offering what we would consider a, a uh, a review of a concert. So she was interested in writing about music uh, uh, in history and about music uh, in Christian faith. That was certainly a great theme for her. But she was also interested in writing about military music. Her father had been um, a soldier in the Irish volunteer regiments during the Napoleonic Wars. That's probably how he got his musical training as a drum or fife boy in the Irish volunteer um, militia. So she had a fondness for military music. And she said, uh, you know, uh, there's no music uh, like the national military music of a nation to stir the souls and encourage the hearts of those uh, citizens. And also the same brave soldiers would be turned to tears by the, the sad 
national tunes and airs of their country. She thought music had a tremendous, powerful effect to change the way that people feel. And of course, this is the magic of music. It's, it makes our feet go. It makes our hearts go. It makes us feel things. She believed music had great uh, associative uh, effect and also the ability to uplift the spirit or the soul. This was a common belief among 19th century writers on music. They all talked about the role of music for uplift. And in this way, she thought particularly that minstrelsy was uh, a pernicious bane, I think she called it, because it was music that uh, in which the lyrics uh, were so uh, uh, unpleasant and insulting to black Americans. She never spoke about abolition. She never spoke about slavery, but she spoke about the nobility of the black rhetoric that she heard, probably in speeches or in, in preaching when she lived in cities like Boston and Philadelphia when she was a teenager or a young woman. She um, recognized that the lyrics of minstrelsy were uh, nothing but, but crude and ugly stereotypes, and she said so. There are many others, um, uh, um, John Sullivan Dwight was one who said the same thing, that uh, minstrelsy was crude and, and injurious, really, to the national character and offered uh, nothing to uplift, to uplift uh, the, the spirit and the soul. So let's turn it around then. Um, she was also the subject of musical commentary and musical criticism. What did her contemporaries think about her music? It was not uh, given a lot of uh, space as a subject for reviews. Very typical for music publishers was to put a, a notice in the newspaper and say something about it being elegant or melodious or tuneful, this kind of thing. It was actually sort of a, a, a puff, advertising puff, talking up the music so that customers would be interested in it. She had one occasion where Henry Watson, who was a very acid-tongued critic in the New York City um, papers in the 1840s and 50s, uh, he reviewed one of her pieces rather not negatively. He would have said he was saying something nice about it. He said that uh, the music was uh, a, young, a young lady who had not been carefully schooled. Well, these words were very uh, painful, I'm sure, for her to hear because she had been um, a very carefully schooled musician from her early, early childhood. She said by the age of four or five, she was playing pieces by Purcell or, or Corelli. And um, she had th the best training she could get, but it was training from her parents. It, there were no uh, academies of, of music to go to except their own music academy. There were no female colleges yet uh, when she came of an age when our uh, children would go to college. And also by that time, she was already working full time as a teacher in the family music business. So she made the most of her own training, 
but it was limited to the books and uh, uh, skills that her mother and father had. So she did not have access to a higher education in music. Um, And this, of course, had she had more exposure to higher training in orchestration, in counterpoint, in instrumentation, in form. If that had been the case, we might see more works from her in uh, more complicated uh, genres. As it was, she stuck to piano solos, which of course she was a very good pianist. She knew that repertoire well and wrote very well um, idiomatically for the piano. And she also knew the song market, the commercial sheet music marketplace and songs and was able to turn out um, songs that uh, sold, maybe not in huge numbers, but, but they sold. It's interesting that Henry Watson published uh, a number of songs. His wife was a singer. He published songs that really weren't different in style from Augusta Brown's songs. As far as... No, no, go ahead. As far as other reviews, we really don't see a great many um, that are closely um, focused on her music or on a particular piece. Um, I was going to pick up you. I, you're a verified pianist. I have heard you play Augusta Brown before. Can you tell me a little bit about what you think you know about her as a performer based upon the piano music that she wrote? That's that's a good point. It's very easy to tell uh, even how big her hands were. They're bigger than my hands because she wrote for a stretch that's a little bit un, uh, not um, appropriate for my hand. She also stuck to the keys that fell well beneath her fingers. She stuck to E-flat. She liked E-flat a lot, but she also branched out into B-flat, A-flat, and even uh, D-flat. She could do some very skillful use of arpeggios and broken chord figuration and this sort of thing. It wasn't uh, different than we see in other good piano uh, composers from the period. but uh, she enjoyed playing. I, there is a description that, that says when she played her De Meyer grand waltz, it was as though De Meyer himself uh, was playing at her, her style, was so much like his. This is Leopold de Meyer, who was um, a virtuoso from Europe who toured the United States in the 1840s uh, to great um, acclaim. One of the the other things about the book is you don't just talk about Augusta Brown. It's almost a family history of the Brown family. Um, You spend a lot of time on her brothers and sisters and her parents, particularly her father. Why did you choose to um, look so deeply into the other members of her family? Her family... Her family situation dictated so many aspects of her life. It's also how I came into um, the subject um, in research. The biography took more than 25 years, and it brings uh, the groundbreaking work that Judith Tick did uh, in her dissertation and her publication, American Women Composers, um, before 1870. My book takes her groundbreaking work into the digital age. 
However, at the time Judith Tick was working uh, on her research, it was the 1970s. She had wonderful access to the special collections in New York City and Boston, up and down the uh, eastern seaboard. But at the time, there were, for instance, not yet the databases of sheet music that informed my um, uh, research and discussion and conclusions. In fact, um, Judith Tick had to, had to say about Augusta Brown that she had no idea about um, her musical education. It's very interesting that Augusta Brown, in all of her writing, never said her father's name. How unusual that is. There was a Victorian uh, sort of uh, uh, rule not to talk about uh, uh, people publicly, but not to say his name was very strange indeed. When I decided to work on Brown's life, I began with what was available where I was living, and that was microfilms, microfilms of census returns. I was trying to find out who her family was. I'd already been working on periodicals by that time uh, for a decade. I was fortunate that my father was a genealogy specialist. He'd always been interested in working with census records, and he gave me some tips. Now, of course, we just have Ancestry, and it's online, and you just you know plug it in, and <laughs> out comes the information. But Studying the census for microfilms uh, during the 90s was, was much more difficult. I lucked out. I was sitting in the Norfolk, Virginia Public Library looking. I, I started with Washington, D.C., which is where Augusta Brown lived at the end of her life. And that was because it was one of the microfilms that the Norfolk Public Library had. My father said, well, it'll take you about two hours to go through a reel of microfilm. And there were four reels for Washington, D.C. So I don't know. I, I just picked one. I was lucky. Near the end of the first reel, I found, I, found the I found her name. I found her brother's name, William Henry Brown. And I found her mother's, Elizabeth Brown. By this time, her father was already deceased. So with those names, I was able to go back to the 18... That was an 1880 census. I was able to go back to... Uh, no, I'm sorry, that was an 1870 census, the 18, uh, and I was able to go back a decade from there and look at the names I'd found. And gradually going back census by census, I eventually found her father's name and found out more about where they were living. It was a real goose chase because uh, David Brown moved so often to try to find a better business situation for their family music academy. That was a real American story, too. He, he came from Dublin. Oh, well, he, as I said, had been in the uh, Napoleonic Wars as uh, a militia musician. He came to Dublin after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and started teaching music and ran a music shop. He could see that Ireland was losing ground uh, uh, after the Congress of Ireland was really absorbed by England around 1800. So he wanted to uh, come to the New World. He intended to come to New York City, but he changed plans uh, midway. 
and went to St. John, New Brunswick in Canada, what is now Canada. It was then the British provinces, of course. He was there for a few years. Then he brought his growing family to Boston, where Augusta was just a little child when she was described in the Boston newspapers for a surprisingly fine performance of a piece by Dussek. She was only about six years old at the time. Things didn't work out quite to his liking in Boston, so he did go to New York City, but that didn't work out either. So he went, he took the family to Toronto for a while, then back to Boston. And it just went on and on. From Boston, they went to Baltimore and then to Philadelphia. And then finally, when Augusta was about 21, they moved back to New York City. And that was where she was for about the next 25 years. I, I really uh, understood what it was like for Augusta with all those moves in childhood because I grew up in a military uh, family. My dad was in the army. We moved all the time. And it was always quite quite the ordeal, uh, getting your feet on the ground in a new place and trying to find new services for my mother and father, a new piano teacher for me, new friends at school, and so on. So I understood what these pressures were like in her life. And of course, that was uh, in connection with her father's business troubles, which uh, were very unfortunate. He seems to have had an unfortunate uh, knack for making enemies wherever he went. He was always in the wrong time at the wrong place, unlike some of his colleagues who were always in the right time, the right place at the right time. Then when she was, uh, um, after a quarter century almost in the New York area between Brooklyn and, and uh, Manhattan, when the Civil War um, broke out, her remaining two brothers, there were only two brothers left of what originally had been, I think, eight siblings, only two brothers left out of that. They went and volunteered in the New York um, regiments and fought with the Grand Army of the Potomac. One of her brothers was uh, seriously wounded in 1863. And after, uh, after that, he could no longer serve actively, so he served in an administrative role as a, as a veteran. And he was assigned to Baltimore. So the whole family, uh, which was just Augusta and uh, her parents, moved to Baltimore to be with him. And then after um, a period in Baltimore, which is where her father died, they moved to Washington, D.C. That was about uh, 1867, during Reconstruction. Her brother, William Henry, had received a job in the U.S. Patent Office. So that's what brought her to Washington, D.C. for the last 15 years or so of her life. You know, you bring up, uh, just at the end of that question, you, you uh, or answer rather, you brought up that she had had eight siblings, but by the time of the Civil War, only two were left alive. She also was married for a brief time in her mid-30s to a, a slightly younger man who died after only three years. Um, she did experience an enormous amount of loss in her life. Um, and I wonder, not to mention all the, the moves, of course, I wonder if you have a sense, of course, she Again, you only have those public documents, but do you have a sense of how that loss, those losses affected her um, throughout her life as she coped with all this death around her? That's right. 
death was such a familiar part of American life, but every every loss was such a poignant one because people tended to die at home. You saw them in their final life stages. This was what she saw with her youngest brother, Hamilton, who died from tuberculosis. She saw him, you know, uh, dwindling away before them. And she wrote that into a sort of a memoir after his death. He died in 1850. He was just 20 years old. He had the makings of, of a wonderful artist. But she emphasized instead in his story um, his Christian fortitude. She turned his death into a tribute and uh, hoped that it would serve as a condolence to other people who lost a beloved child, a beloved a sibling, a beloved member of the family. This was the pattern then. She tried to turn the sorrow into creativity. Her first published piece of prose was actually an obituary for her younger sister. I should say the first piece of prose I know about. It was published in uh, a New York uh, Christian newspaper after her sister died of a short illness. She was only 14 years old at the time of her death. So that uh, set a pattern that was uh, repeated with the book about Hamilton, which is called Hamilton, the Young Artist. That was in 1850. And after Augusta's husband, who uh, died apparently without any warning of um, heart trouble, uh, he was only 38 or so when he, when he died, she soon had put together uh, a collection of writings that she found comforting. They were uh, passages from the scriptures or passages from sermons by other well-respected ministers. She gathered together poems that she thought were inspirational in the time a person needed comfort. She published all that just uh, a, a year after her husband died. In fact, she wrote the dedication to that work just four months after he died. So she immediately turned to writing as a form of catharsis. She also wrote music as a form of catharsis. She wrote uh, a couple of songs when Hamilton died as well. She never got over uh, mourning these deaths, of course, and a constant theme in her music and prose was looking forward to the uh, family coming together again in the afterlife uh, and, and the promise of salvation. This was uh, a very important point for her that she focused on again and again in her prose. Probably the most important um, American historical uh, event she lived through, of course, was the Civil War. And you mentioned briefly that um, she never talked about abolitionism in her writing and also that her uh, one of her brothers was injured in the war. But can you expand a little bit more about um, what her experiences were related to the Civil War and how much that affected her? She did, she did something very surprising. Actually, it's what she did not do that's so surprising. She never wrote any music about the Civil War. Here is a time when hundreds and hundreds of uh, popular songs came out about every aspect of the war, the heroes, the battles, the sorrows, the comfort of uh, the campfire with the soldiers around it. She did none of that. 
She did talk about the Civil War a bit in her prose. She did not talk about it in terms of slavery, but in terms of secession, how the nation needed to stay united. And that's the same way her brother, uh, William Henry, talked about it. It was very uh, shocking to learn, um, really, um, in the final stages of the book, that Augusta Brown's husband uh, came from a slave-owning family. And in fact, even after they were married, he had to go to Memphis, where he had uh, had lived, and um, rented out, hired out his uh, slaves, one or two slaves, his and his sisters. Uh, he had to go and sell a slave. Um, the reason I learned about this um, was because that property record, the sale of that 16-year-old girl named Lucy, was in the uh, property records from... Uh, Shelby County uh, in Tennessee, where Memphis is located. You know, over and over as I've been listening to your answers, it's really so clear how research like this can't, well, it's very difficult to do it without um, all of our digital uh, resources now. And, you know, you mentioned how different you could, um, how differently you could uh, approach her life than Judith Tick could, who did not have the ability to just plug Augusta Brown as a name into a search engine somewhere. And um, do you think do you think that you, you'll find more and more uh, work by other musicologists and historians on these sort of peripheral figures as more and more of the printed matter from uh, American libraries are put online? Absolutely. These stories couldn't be told before. That It's as simple as that. And these stories themselves just give us so much uh, more about our own past. They tell us about ourselves. We like to see a little bit of ourselves in these stories. So once Augusta Brown got her hooks into me with her story, I couldn't stop. I, I do believe uh, more pieces, uh, more pieces of music by her may turn up as additional sheet music is uh, cataloged and digitized in uh, libraries and special collections, especially the binders volumes uh, that women often used to uh, have made for them to keep their music uh, and to keep it in uh, keep it in order. It was also sort of a like a coffee table book in your house. It showed what a cultured individual you were to show all that the all the music that you had and learned and, and worked on and liked to perform in a book that people could, could see. So those tended to be saved, and there are thousands of them uh, in special collections and libraries. So there's a number of them that still aren't cataloged completely at the Library of Congress, and I'm sure that's true all over. I, I look forward to learning about more pieces of music that Augusta Brown uh, uh, did publish in that way. And I'm sure we'll also find more prose that she published as ephemeral periodicals are digitized in a way that was just not possible to see before 2010, at least. And every time I would go to a library after 2010, I would find something new either a new article or a new piece of music or an advertisement that mentioned a new piece of music. It might be years before I 
found that piece of music, but at least I knew she had published it. I knew what the title was. I knew approximately when it was published and so on. That was very exciting. That was one of the uh, stimulations that always, the curiosity to find something new, it always kept me going back on the research trail. It's a lot easier to do the research trail now that so much of it is available at open source online. But for years, I would just travel hundreds of miles to go to libraries. When I learned about a piece there, I would go drive three or 400 miles to go uh, get a copy of a piece in a special collections, for instance, the University of Texas or the University of Alabama or at Princeton. So I, I visited lots of wonderful libraries while I was seeking Augusta Brown. It's it's amazing how widely that shows her music was circulated, if you can find it in libraries all over the country, certainly. And I think, I mean, I'm looking forward to more and more of this work on figures who um, are going to be found in these ephemeral publications and, like you said, uh, binders, volumes and things, because I think she tells us so much about what women's lives were really like then. As you said, there were hundreds of women who were publishing music in these um, magazines. And you wonder, you know, I think that perhaps we have a slightly um, inaccurate idea of what women's culture uh, and women's place was, particularly white women in this period, because for so long, the research was uh, geared toward the famous men, the big publications, the, um, you know, the, the things that were easy to find in major libraries and all this other stuff that's sort of burbling under the circuit surface that's harder to find, all the people that don't, that don't go and drive hundreds of miles to find one piece of music in a library, you know, um, being able to see that, it seems to me we're going to find out a lot about America and, and the lives of um, uh, lives of women and people of color um, as the years go by because of these uh, digital uh, resources that we have now. Yes, I believe her story uh, it speaks to me. I believe stories like these will speak to our students. I so wish that I had had a story like hers among the biographies that I read when I was a little girl. I loved reading a um, the little children's biographies of women like Louisa May Alcott or Clara Barton. Um, and I, there weren't any biographies of American women musicians who had been American girls like me who took piano lessons and who liked to read about literature and history and music. I hope that uh, Augusta Brown's story one day will empower other girls who share similar pursuits. Well, that might be a great way to end our, our talk about the book, just as, sort of as her as such an inspiration, um, an inspirational figure uh, for a woman who had, you know, she had a good career in, in a time when, when we often don't think that woman could. So um, it certainly is a, uh, it's, she's certainly an inspiring figure from that um, point of view. Um, so you spent, you said you spent 25 years working on this biography. That's a huge chunk of your professional life. Um, what have you decided to do now that this uh, biography is in print? Well, there are many um, research tangents that could not be part of the book, but now I have time to pursue them. So that that's good. I uh, am interested in other women's stories that are, um, run along um, uh, 
in, in the same era, for instance, um, uh, Sophia Hewitt Ostinelli, who was a role model for Augusta Brown and had uh, a professional career even a decade or two earlier than uh, um, Augusta did, and uh, other figures that come up on the way. I think all these stories, especially women's stories, uh, enrich our lives. I remember um, Geraldine Ferrara, who ran for vice president with Walter Mondale. She said, every time a woman runs, women win. And I would paraphrase that to be something like, every time a woman succeeds, we all win, especially uh, women. So we know haven't we haven't known many stories of American women musician, uh, musicians as early as Augusta Brown's, but there are other ones uh, out there, absolutely, and, and I look forward to learning more of them. Well, I look forward to going to more talks so I can hear about them when, when I see. Well, someday we'll be able to see each other at a conference again. <laughs> That's right. Um, but um, it sounds like you have uh, some more women to study and um, more databases to scour and uh, someday hopefully more libraries to visit as well. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Kristen. In the short term, I'm working on uh, small essays that I've been publishing on my website, bonniemillermusic.com. And this allows me to talk about some things that I could not include in the book. Uh, also, they can be uh, uh, more colorful and have more illustrations than uh, were possible in my book. And I was very lucky with the book uh, that I was able to write the book that I wanted to. I didn't have to limit it to a certain length as um, uh, many academic um, publications have to be these days. Uh, so it was a great uh, joy that I was able in the end to write the book that I wanted to write about Augusta Brown and include a lot of her music in it because it is uh, quite hard to uh, access her music to use. I mean, I always played off of 19th century imprints, but some of them are full of errors or not, not very good. Another future project is taking all the finale transcriptions that I made of her scores and getting them into the hands of students and teachers through uh, digital sheet mu music sales like sheetmusic.com. So that's another project for the future. Oh, well, that is very exciting, actually. I, um, it's always so difficult, I think, for uh, today's music teachers who want to give their students access to music by you know, non-canonic composure to actually find that music. So that's very exciting to hear that's one of your projects. I think that's going to be a big, um, uh, you know, a big a contribution because uh, we might not, you know, the young women that you imagine might might not necessarily read uh, your book, but they would might find Augusta Brown through her music and then find your book. So that's that's exciting that you're going to do that as part of your project. So. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining me, Bonnie. My name is Kristen Turner. I've been discussing Augusta Brown, composer and women of letters in 19th century America with the author Bonnie Miller here on New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Thank you, Kristen. <laughs>